Well, let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you that, um, oh, you're a good, good father. And we thank you, Father, that um, what you say about us is who we truly are. That we're not defined by what the world may say or our past may say or our fear of the future may say. Father, we are fully defined by you. And, and that's, that's just, we're, we're your children. We're your children. So, Father, thank you for worship. Thank you that in this room we can declare your praises. Thank you that you delight in that. God, I pray as we open your word that you would teach us, encourage us, challenge us, convict us. Um, Father, just use this time for your namesake. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, if you would, remain standing for the reading of God's word. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But... You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Did the alarm go off a little bit earlier this morning than usual? Did y'all notice that? It was like really, like exactly an hour earlier than usual. Um, it was a little difficult for me to get up. Hey, um, I am really excited to be here. I love this church. I'm, I've known David for years. And yes, he is much larger than I am. Um, but I'm also much younger and better looking. And so um, there's no doubt that's true. Why does Shane wear tank tops? I mean, I mean, if I had arms like that, I'd probably wear a tank top right now myself, to be honest. But um, anyway, it's really good to be here. And I've been pondering a, a lot of the big questions of life. Um, for example, um, do you know the Muffin Man? Uh, who is the Muffin Man, anyway? Have y'all sung that before? I'm, I'm doing my grandkids right now. Um, and I have some other questions I kind of jotted down. Um, why do fools fall in love? Why do birds sing? Why, you know, why, what, what happens? Who knows? why fools fall in love, but we, we all do, don't we, at some level. Um, here's another question. One of the biggest questions is, why do they call those little small candy bars fun sizes? You know, the little bitty tiny ones that you hand out at um, Halloween or, you know, you know what I'm talking about? That's just enough to make you mad. That's not, that's not fun at all. Um, I don't know why they call them fun sizes. And here's um, a, a question that I've been pondering. And um, Do I need a different microphone? Is that, can you all? I don't think so. Can you hear me okay? Okay. Here's one that I think is probably unique to South Florida, um, and you can think about this. It's an important question. Will there ever be another competitive college or NFL football team in South Florida? Um, I'm just, you know, I'm from Atlanta, um, so we're the worst except for soccer. Okay, go Atlanta United. No, I don't, yeah. So um, anyway, big questions in life, but there is one particular question I think it's very, it's very, very important for us to wrestle with. And we have to think about this, and I'm sure you've thought about this before, and maybe you think about it consistently now, but it's just simply this. It's who am I? Who am I? And it's a big, important question because it gets to something about our identity, what we believe 
about ourselves. And we ask this question a lot in our lives. Particularly, we do this in middle school. I don't know if you remember being in middle school or not. Um, I barely remember it. It's getting further away um, as every day goes on. But I remember in middle school trying to figure out who am I going to become? Who am I going to be? And so I did that by actually thinking about what kind of music would I like? You want me to do something different? Um, I started doing that by thinking about what kind of music am I going to like. And listen, it wasn't actually what music I liked. It's, it's what kind of music would I like because I was trying to figure out my identity. And the reality is I grew up in arguably the golden age of music in the 80s. Right? Anybody with me? It's like the best ever. Oh, thank you. Um, we had Madonna in the 80s. Right? Remember? She's still around, but we had her in the 80s. And then we had... Um, um, Duran Duran, her name is Rio, and she dances on the sand. I mean, and I love Duran Duran. Um, Michael Jackson, Thriller, that, one of the greatest albums of all time. Um, U2 was coming online in, in the 80s. And then we had Wham, not so good. Um, and then this band called the Jay Giles Band, anybody remember? So, yeah. So, anyway, the golden age of music. And I was trying to figure out what kind of music am I going to like. I like Chicago you know, Saturday in the park, you think it's the 4th of July. I really enjoyed Chicago, and I'm kind of like, is that, who, is that the kind of band I want to associate with? Is that going to help define who I am? And then I started thinking about, well, I really like sticks. You know, Kilroy was here. I went to, a stick, I went to the Kilroy was here concert, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, what kind of music I like, who am I going to become? But I secretly, I, I secretly liked Barry Manilow. Mandy, she came and she gave without taking, and I sent her away. I mean, I, I secretly like Barry Manilow, but I was not going to be associated with that. And so, listen, the music I liked, I didn't necessarily like because it was great music. I liked it because of what it made other people really think about me. I was trying to figure out who I was. And listen, that's not just a middle school issue, is it? Um, I am 52 years old. I'm a papa. I have three grandkids. And there are still days when I'm thinking about, who am I? What am I becoming? What is the truest part of who I am? Because there are things that are true about me. There are things that are true about me. But what is the truest part of who I am? And so it's an important question because um, this is the reality. What you believe your identity to be is what drives you. Let me say that again. What you believe your identity to be is what drives you. And maybe it's just me, but there's this tension of what the world says about me, of what I say about myself, of what others say about me. And there's these lies that keep kind of creeping into my mind. And the reality is, it's what was said earlier. The truest part of who we are is not what others say or what we think. It's actually what God says about us. There's a guy named Henry Nowen who wrote the five, he wrote five lies of identity. And I want you to think about these. And as we go, th- as we go through these, think about which of these lies are you most tempted to believe. Okay, you probably don't believe all of them, um, but think about which of these lies are you most tempted to believe. First of all, I am what I have. I am what I have. If you believe that, you're driven by materialism and greed, right? Because who we are is what drives us or what we believe ourselves to be. The second is, I am what I do. If that's the lie you're tempted to believe, if you believe that, you're driven by performance. And listen, if you believe that, it will never be enough. You will never perform good enough. Number three, I am what others say or think of me. If that's what you believe, you're driven by your reputation. 
and you'll do everything you can to protect your reputation, and if somebody says something about you, it will destroy you. It will destroy you. I am nothing, wor- I'm nothing more than my worst moment. Number four, I am nothing more than my worst moment. If that's the lie you believe, then you're driven by shame. You're driven by shame. Maybe there's something you've done that's happened in your life, and the reality is you can't get over it because you believe it defines you. And finally, I'm nothing less than my best moment. If you believe that lie, you're driven by achievement, and you will always try to do more and more and more. So if these are the five lies, right, if there's five lies that we're tempted to believe, then the reality is, and the question is, what what is the the truest part of who we are? And it's actually thinking and praying, okay, God, what what do you want us to believe about ourselves? And there's all kinds of things we could say about this. Scripture is, is full of, of our identity, what, what God says about us, about us. But at the deepest level, at foundational place, at the highest level, we are ultimately this. We're Abba's child. We're Abba's child. We are a child of God, but I chose the word Abba because maybe we don't talk about that or think about that very often. It's a very unique term. Um, the Hebrews would, for, for children, they would call their, their papa, their dad, they would call them Abba. They would say, hey, you, you are my Abba. Abba, help me. And it's a, it's a term that's full of great tenderness and affection. Tenderness and affection of intimacy that a child would actually say, Abba, Abba, that is our identity. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about the words tender and affection, that does not really remind me much of my physical dad, right? I grew up on the job site. He was a builder, and I remember at like six years old, he would drag me away from Scooby-Doo and take me on the job site to, to clean up, and I was working at an early age, and he was kind of, he was rough. He's, he's still that way a little bit, and I don't think of him as, as tender and affectionate. Here's the reality. What happens is when we actually think about our earthly fathers, and maybe you have an incredibly Um, gifted and and godly earthly father, he's still not what your heavenly father is, no matter how good he is. And maybe you had a very, very, maybe you have a difficult time with your earthly father. The reality is, listen, God as a father is the best father you could ever imagine. And he loves you. Not only does he love you, he actually likes you a lot. He likes you a lot. Here's what scripture says a couple times about him as our father. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That love is lavished. I love that word. It's lavished on us. And that is what we are. Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You're a child of a tender, gracious, compassionate Abba. That, that's who you are. That's the truest part of who you are. So as we think about this overarching definition of us, we're Abba, we're Abba's child. I want to look at a passage, and it's the first Peter passage, that really kind of digs down a little bit and gets more specific about who we are as Abba's child. And I want to read it again and just listen to this. He's, he's telling the people, this is who you are. He says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. A couple of reminders about the book of 1 Peter. Who wrote the book of 1 Peter? 
Very good. They are smart. You're right. Um, yeah, Peter wrote the book of First Peter. Remember who Peter was. He was very close to Jesus, but he's the one who denied him three times. And like a good father would, Jesus, his Savior, by the Sea of Galilee, restored him. Hey, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love that? That's who Peter was. And he understood the tenderness of Jesus and the relationship that Jesus had with his father. The, the book of First Peter is written to what Peter calls exiles. In other words, they were living in a foreign land. And by the way, um, they were Christians living in a culture that was very antagonistic towards Christianity. And by the way, our culture is doing the same thing. Gen Z, this next generation coming up, is the first truly non-Christian generation in history in history. We are progressively becoming more and more in a foreign land where, where Christianity is not loved and appreciated by the world around us. Nothing to be afraid of, just the reality. We ourselves are exiles. And as we look at these couple of verses, I want us to see three descriptors that are in these verses that actually help us understand at a deeper level what it means to be a child of Abba. Okay? So here's the first one. The first descriptor. As Abba's child, you are highly favored by God. Let that sink in just for a second. You are highly favored by God. Here's what Peter says. He says, you are a chosen people. He doesn't say a choice people. You're a chosen people. You are God's special possession. He calls them the people of God. You're highly favored by God. I, um, I had a grandson, my, my third grandchild, three weeks ago today, and um, my, my daughter lives in Dallas, so we got on the plane, went out there and saw him. And, of course, we were out in Dallas for a few days, and I took some pictures of my grandson, Knox. And I kind of noticed as I came back to Atlanta and I'm going to my restaurants and I'm, going, I'm at work and all these kind of things, I, I take out my cell phone and I'm like, hey, look at my grandson. Somebody may ask, but it doesn't matter if they ask or not. It doesn't matter. I'm kind of, hey, I want you to see Knox. Here he is. And if God had a cell phone, this is what it means to be highly favored by God. If God had a cell phone, he would have your picture on the screen. You were that favored as his child. And he would go around and he would basically say, hey, I want you to see. I want you to see my children. I love them. I favor them. I not only love them, but I actually like them a lot. And I am so proud of them and I favor them. That's what it means to be highly favored by God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is a father who feels that way towards you? So when we think about being highly favored by God, I think there's two extremes we can go to that are, that are both lies or erroneous extremes. The first extreme is, well, of course, of course God highly favors me because have you seen all that I've done? We think we are favored by God because of what we've done. That's, that's not true. It's just simply not true. The other extreme, which is equally false, is, hey, I cannot be highly favored by God. Have you seen all that I've done? You see, both of those extremes are moralism. It basically takes your behavior, your performance, and it basically puts the pressure on you to perform in such a way that God favors you. Listen, God's favor on your life and you as Abba's child is nowhere even close dependent upon your performance. God loves you as you are, not because you're good or because you're bad, but because Jesus lived a perfect life on your behalf. I think we get confused about God sometimes. Oh, we kind of think, well, maybe God is a little bit like Santa Claus. You know, if you're really good, what do you get at Christmas? 
Well, I hope I get presents if I'm really good. If you're good, you get presents, right? If you're bad, you get what? You get our switches. I got switches. Am I the only one that got switches if I was bad? Um, maybe that's true. But we, sometimes we get confused. We think that somehow we have a Heavenly Father that is rewarding us and has affection for us based on how good or how bad we... Listen, it's all about the goodness and the perfection of Jesus. That's why you're highly favored by God. So that's the first descriptor. The second is this. As Abba's child, you're marked by mercy and grace. Peter says this in verse 10. He says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In other words, Peter is reminding them, there was a time that you were, not, you were on the condemn, under the condemnation of your own sin. There was a time that you were under sin, not righteousness. There was a time that you were in darkness, not in light. There was a time that you were enslaved to your sin before you were set free. He reminds them that you had not once, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And you're marked by that. So back in the day, just a few years ago, I used to race bicycles. And um, I thought that I would become like Lance Armstrong and, and ride my bike a lot. And I did. I, I rode um, competitively for years. And when you race bicycles, something inevitably happens. It's just a matter of time. You're going to crash. You're going to crash. And when you crash, it's going to leave a mark. It's the worst it's the worst thing to crash. You get road rash on your arm, elbows, whatever. And so I would be marked by these scars. I have scars on my elbows and on my knees for where I, I crashed. And we all have scars, right? I guess in South Florida, does anybody have a shark bite scar? I would love to see that if you do. Um, but anyway, I mean, we all have physical scars. But listen, don't, don't, we have, don't we have some scars that may go a little bit deeper than the physical? Don't we have marks that we have where maybe something's been done to us and it's left a mark and that mark lingers maybe it's not just something that's done to us maybe it's what we've done to others and that's what has marked us and we cannot get that out of our mind maybe we just live in a broken world where there's tornadoes in nashville and there's a coronavirus and there's all these things going on and maybe we're just marked by the circumstances of this world listen we all have scars and marks that are a little bit deeper a little bit deeper than our skin. But the most significant mark that you have is the mercy of Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus was marked on your behalf. He, he wears the scars on his back and his wrists and in his feet of where he was marked for your behalf. And you are marked primarily not by what's happened in the past or what will happen in the future. You are marked primarily by the mercy and the grace of Jesus. He has marked you with that. That's really good news. That's really good news. That's who we are as Abba's child. So finally, as Abba's child, we're marked by grace as well, but, but you're given a mission. You're given a mission. Look what he says in verse 9. As he says, you're a chosen people, royal priesthood. He says this, you're these things so that, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light that you may declare, you're given a mission. Now, when I think about declaring the praises of God, I think about what we did earlier. We all sang together. We were declaring the praises of God. And we usually think about the first day of the week when we come together and we're in a building and we're praising God together. That, that is a part of declaring the praises of God. But listen, declaring the praises of God is not just about what happens in this room. It's also about what happens in your neighborhood or at the grocery store or at school 
or in your workplace. You see, we are a declaration of God's love. We have received God's love as Abba's, Abba's children, and we are to declare that love and be a conduit of that love in the mission of God that he's called us to do. So my wife and I, my wife and I, um, we've been thinking about this. How do we live out the mission of God for years now? And I have a deep desire to do that. I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor a long time. So I have a, sometimes it's kind of challenging to get around people who don't know Jesus yet. And so we've had to be really intentional about that. And growing up in the Bible Belt, like um, in Atlanta, living in Atlanta and then Dallas and back to Atlanta, there's a sense in which you have to really go out of your way sometimes to find somebody who's never heard the gospel or at least doesn't understand it. So um, we decided um, when our kids moved out of the house in Dallas, Texas, that we would sell our house in the suburbs and move to an apartment complex. And it was a nice apartment complex that had to be for my wife to actually do this. And so we moved to this um, apartment complex because we wanted to be around people that were different than us, ethnically, spiritually, age. We wanted to be around people that were younger. That wasn't that challenging um, because we were getting older. And we moved to this apartment complex, and I remember walking around the pool and inside the apartment complex and just saying, God, if your kingdom were to come, your will be done at Crest at Las Colinas as it is in heaven. What would that look like? Crest, that was the name of the apartment complex. And God doesn't audibly speak to me. I think if he did, it'd sound like Morgan Freeman. But anyway, he, he did not audibly speak to me. But when I started asking the question, if your kingdom were here, if I were going to live out your mission and declare your praises here as it is in heaven, what, what would happen? And it wasn't like you'd stand up and preach or you'd share the gospel to everybody. It was simply this. David, my kingdom here means people who live here would be less lonely. People who live here would be less lonely. So we thought, okay, what if we just started having a meal together once a week on Tuesday nights? And what if we called it potluck? I mean, you know, let's bring it back, right? Let's have a potluck thing here. And it started small. I mean, we had two, four, six people show up. And finally, by we've been doing it for weeks. People heard about it. Listen, people really wanted to belong. They were hungry for this, not just the food, but they were hungry to connect and belong to others. And so we started meeting weekly. And, and there was a, one particular girl, her name was Hannah. And um, Hannah was, um, she had, let me just say this, she had a lot of marks. She had a lot of scars, not physically, but, but much, much deeper. And so, um, and she wasn't well loved by the people in the apartment complex. She wouldn't have been everybody's favorite. Um, she was kind of quirky. And so she came to me and said, David, can we, um, can we do my birthday party on potluck next week? It's my birthday. I'm probably not going to hear from my mom. I know I won't hear from my dad. And I, I want to celebrate my birthday with um, my neighbors, which I thought was strange, but really cool. And so we did. We got her a cake. We got her flowers. And we're in the, the social space hanging out. And I start thinking, okay, when, when I had young children or when I had kids in the house, we would go around the table on their birthdays, and we would basically share one thing we really love and appreciate about the person having the birthday. And that came to my mind. I thought, oh, my gosh, I can't do that. What if nobody says anything, right? It was kind of risky. It was risky. So I did. I pulled everybody together, and um, I basically said, hey, as you all know, it's Hannah's birthday, and um, we want to celebrate her. And we're kind of a family here, not physically, but we're neighbors. We live in close proximity to each other. And in my family, what we would do is go around. I told them the story of what we did. And I said, hey, why don't we do that for Hannah? And I had something I was about to say just in case. You know, I thought I might have to prime the pump a little bit. Um, but as soon as I said, let's do this for Hannah, one by one, people just started saying things about Hannah. They were saying those things. And I actually thought, wait, that's actually true. 
They weren't making it up. They weren't lying. Um, there were actually things that they'd noticed and appreciated about Hannah. And listen, um, I didn't get my Bible out. I, didn't, I, I just think, listen, I think the praises of God were being proclaimed in that social space. At the end, everybody shared, took 15 or 20 minutes. I was like in awe. It took 15 or 20 minutes, and finally, I said, hey, why don't we just sing happy birthday for Hannah? And so we sang happy birthday. I said, what about in Spanish? And we sang in Spanish. And then before I knew it, we had sung happy birthday to Hannah in seven different languages. And when I think about, when I think about heaven, and I think about God's kingdom coming, God's will be done, the kingdom of heaven is, it's, it's here. And you have been called by God on a mission. You've received his love as Abba's child. He, he loves you. He's a tender, affectionate father, right? He really does. But he has called you on mission. He's called you to declare the praises and the love of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We can't keep that to ourselves. We just can't do it. And listen, I'm not advocating that you sell your house and move to an apartment complex or anything like that. Please don't, please don't do that unless God tells you to. Um, but here's what I am saying. You are already walking in places and spaces where there's people around you who need to be know they, they need to know they're loved. There are people around you who are hurting, who have scars that need to know there is a savior who has absorbed in his body the scars of our sin. And they it's not rocket science, just love the way you've been loved. Just love the way you've been loved. So as I go back and I think about these lies, and again, what, we, what you believe your identity to be is what drives you. As I think about the lies that we had, um, here's the truth that kind of counters the lie. Does that make sense? So the first lie was, I am what I have, right? Remember, we're driven by materialism and greed. Here's the truth. He, God, is a generous provider. Therefore, we can be generous and live the way he's called us because of Jesus. You know the lie, I am what I do, we're driven by performance. Here's the truth. He, Jesus, has performed perfectly on our behalf. You can rest and relax in his performance on your behalf. You don't have to chase it. The third lie was, I am what others say or think of me, and, and that lie drives us by reputation. Listen, his fame and reputation proceed him. Therefore, we live to make him known. That's the truth. The lie, I'm nothing more than my worst moment driven by shame. He took our shame, and therefore we are forgiven and restored. The lie, I'm nothing less than my best moment driven by achievement. He holds our future. Listen, God holds our future. That's your identity as Abba's child. He holds your future, and the best days are in front of you, not behind you. They're, they're, they're in front of you, not behind you. So listen, we're Abba's children. We are loved. We're pursued. We're actually liked by God, not because we're that good. We're a chosen people, not a choice people, not because we're that good, but because we're his, because we're his. And I love this church. I love the mission that you're already living out. I just want to encourage you as somebody who loves David and Andy and this whole church. I just want to encourage you to figure out what it means for you personally as you've received the love of God to deliver that. Be on map, be on mission. Wherever you're on the map, you're on mission.
Let's pray. So, Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Father, I just confess to you that um, what I know to be true of my identity is not always what I fully believe. So, Father, I pray that all of us would lean in to who you say we are as your children. Father, we thank you that you are a tender, patient, loving, gentle Father. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.